going to come to God's Word, and our readings this morning are, are readings that, uh, in the wake of Easter, begin to have us think about what does it mean to live this out. So, the first is from the Gospel, from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read just a little bit of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, and at verse, gosh, they're small, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, your light, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. And then our second reading is coming from the letter of James. Um, we're going to look at the letter of James over the next few weeks, so we begin at the beginning with James chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first um, 12 verses of James chapter 1, or first 11 verses. Am I giving you 11 verses or 12 verses? 11. 11 verses. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed about by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises, scorching its scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, as we pause this morning to hear your word, to reflect upon it, we ask that by your Holy Spirit that you would make it live for us, transform us, change us as we follow you. You are the salt of the world, 
the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. How's it going, salt and light? How's it going? It's a dangerous question, actually, isn't it? Because as much as we might want to enthuse, the reality is that many of us are, are just about hanging in there. In fact, for many of us this morning, the fact that we've managed to find the enthusiasm to gather in church or to take the time to, to, to watch this on, on, on YouTube or, or, or dial in by phone or, or, or see it in whichever way we are is actually quite an achievement. We could so easily not have bothered. We're hanging in. And actually, thanks be to God for that. Thanks be to God for what He's done that He's brought you to this place today. For some of us, perhaps, these days of, of, of lockdown have been days where we really can see God moving in our lives, where we can give thanks to Him, where we feel that we've grown and we've been stretched and we've, we, we, we've come alive in our faith. But I suspect that many of us are spiritually, perhaps, a little bit stuck. Does that resonate? A little bit stuck. We do our bit. We're coming to worship. But there's really no sense of forward motion, of growing, of maturing as Christians. We aren't sure where we're at. In fact, if we're honest about it, we're still the same grumpy, selfish, lazy, unspiritual people that we were five years ago. Have we really matured and grown? If the Christian life is a pilgrimage as we move forward with the Lord and we are maturing in Him, as James says, some of us feel that we've sort of gone on this pilgrimage and got about as far as Hamilton, not the Holy Land. Maybe we're stuck in a roundabout. <laughs> we're just going round and round. Oh, that's East Bride. That's not Hamilton, isn't it? Yeah. If the children of Israel spent 40 years when they miraculously left the the, the Egypt, and they were heading to the Holy Land, and then they spent 40 years going around in circles. We know what that feels like, that dry place where we just seem to go on and on and on, that place where we sometimes spiritually are looking at ourselves and thinking, I've been here before. Have I really made any progress? These roundabouts all look the same. And when the Bible speaks about the Holy Spirit moving in our lives, transforming us, we wonder. But the Bible is quite clear. The purpose of being in Christ is that we grow in Him. The joy, the peace, the patience, the love, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the self-control, they're fruits of the Spirit. You know the tree is alive because it begins to flower, it begins to bud, it begins to change. That's the whole point of growth. And yet, sometimes we are stuck being us. James here in chapter 2 talks about having many kinds of trials and how those trials make us grow in perseverance and those perseverance makes us grow in faith and that, that makes us grow in the Lord until we mature and yet for many of us we just look at that and think I have trials and oh, oh, I'm doing well if I survive, never mind grow. Are we stuck? How do we get unstuck? One of the hardest questions, I think, though, is do we want to be transformed and changed till we become more like Jesus? 
You know, sometimes in churches, ministers will complain, and I haven't been here long enough to, to, to know how easy or hard it'll be about trying to change things, isn't it? You know, you try to take the pews out, and you, there's a difficulty with that. You try to change the time of a service, or you, you try to change the way the order's done, and, and folk are really resistant. But you know the hardest thing to change in a church? It's not pews, it's people. And yet, right through the Bible, that's what God is doing, working on us, transforming us. The Scripture says that we are God's handiwork, that He is changing us, that He is molding us like a a DIY project that He's on as He begins to transform us until we become like His Son. I want to spend some time in the next weeks being quite practical, and we're going to do that looking at the book of James, because the book of James is a very, very practical book. It deals with difficulties. It deals with temptations. It deals with how we treat people. It deals with what we say to people. It deals with envy and pride and wealth and poverty and suffering and patience and prayer. Now, let me ask you, do you have a problem with any of those things? Maybe one or two. Well, then the book of James, I would want to suggest, is a book for you, for we have things to learn. The book of James is sometimes a neglected book. It's, it's, it's not always a favored book through the history of the church, pra- partly because it is so practical. And when people have been trying to teach the great theological truths of the gospel, they've looked at the book of James and they thought, this isn't really where we want to go. This book doesn't mention the resurrection. It doesn't tell us how we get saved. It doesn't tell us about the cross. It doesn't explain what happens when we die. It doesn't deal with any of the big themes. All it talks about is the practical ways to live. And that's worried some great theologians. Martin Luther called the epistle of James the epistle of straw the epistle of straw. And partly he did that because it didn't seem to have any big theological content. Partly he did that because he was quite worried that people might pick up the the book of James and think, well, if I just live the right life the right way, it'll all be fine. I don't need to worry about all all, all the great theology. I don't need to worry about about being saved or anything like that. I just need to, to try to do these things. But I think we'll find that there's a great, great depth in this. You see, I think the book of James doesn't ignore the gospel truths. Rather, it presumes them. The book of James is concerned with saying, okay, we've had Easter. We believe that Jesus died for our sins, and we believe that he rose again, and we believe that the Holy Spirit is on the church, and we believe that he's gathered a people together to transform things. What are we going to do? How are we going to live? Where are we going to go from here. It fits very well with what Paul says when he writes in Philippians, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. The gospel is that we are broken, that we are sinful, but that we need not simply wallow in our guilt because we know that Jesus died for us, that we are forgiven, that we are given this good news, that we are washed clean. And that's the doctrine of of justification, if you want a big theological word. 
It's a doctrine of, of what God has done that, that makes us completely secure. But there is another key doctrine in terms of who we are, and it's the doctrine of sanctification. And that's the doctrine of what happens from there. That the same God who spent, sent his Holy Spirit to raise Jesus from the dead sends that same Spirit of the risen Jesus on us that we might be transformed, that we might become like Jesus, that we might be the salt and light that's going to change the world around us. Richard of Chichester put it in an ancient prayer this way, thanks be to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits which you've given us, for all the pains and the insults which you've borne for us, most merciful Redeemer, friend, and brother, and I love this bit, may we therefore know you more clearly love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly, day by day. You see that second bit, the day by day? The practical living this out, being shaped by Jesus. The odd thing about the letter of James is it only mentions Jesus twice, once in the opening verse that we read and once in the beginning of chapter 2, which is really strange. In fact, it's led some really cynical scholars to think that the book of James might actually be Jewish, and someone's taken the book and written Jesus in twice just to make it Christian. I don't think that's what happens at all, because as you, as you read the book of James, and I would encourage it, it's only five chapters, read it right through just sit, read it. I used to like reading it out loud if there's nobody else in the house. It's just, just, just to hear the words. Let them wash over you. And as you do that, I think you'll find that Jesus simply shines right through the whole book. It, it echoes the Sermon on the Mount, the great teachings of Jesus as you go through it. You can hear how Jesus dealt with the rich and the poor. You can hear the priorities and the values of the kingdom. You can hear the transformed life that he spoke about as you read right through it. And that's what it is to be salt and light. That's what it is to shape and influence the world. It's not putting an I love Jesus t-shirt on and a big Bible under your arm and going off to church and, and, and shouting about it that way. It's living it in a way that begins to show the transformation of Jesus. James will put it this way in chapter 2. You show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I'll not just sing it. We can't sing it just now, can we? I'll live it. I'll live it out day by day. I had a, a weird experience a number of years ago. I, I, I was walking through the center of Glasgow, and I was accosted by a, a Hare Krishna monk. You know, full robes and stuff like that. Shaved head, that's how you know them. And he had a clipboard, and he was asking for money for underprivileged children. Now, I had read something that made me a bit suspicious of, of, of the money that they were taking. So I started to ask him some questions about where the money was going and what it was about. And then he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, Are you a born-again Christian? And I thought, how did he know that? And I'm looking at myself to see, I, I didn't have a dog collar on, and I'm looking to see if I'm wearing a fish or a, a wee cross badge or, a, or whatever it is, nothing. And I hadn't said anything about Jesus. How do you know that? And he said, you smell like a Christian. And I remember thinking at the time, what do Christians smell like? Sort of church hall mold? But you see, there it is. 
we should smell like Christians because we should give off the aroma of Christ. Something of Jesus lived out through us. The sad thing is sometimes Christians stink to high heaven rather than smell of Jesus, don't they? Sometimes our church life, our, our individual life is toxic, noxious, rather than aromatic of Jesus. And we need to come and we need to repent and we need to steep ourselves in Jesus, steep ourselves in the gospel, steep ourselves in the letter of James and how we live it out, how we relate to one another. So let's get back to this letter. Who wrote it? Well, James. Who was James? Well, we can't be 100% sure. But whoever James was, he was obviously so well known in the early church that he didn't need an introduction. He just said, it's James. And they, uh, yeah, we know who it is. So he must have been somebody pretty well known in the early church. And there's really three candidates. There's, there's James, as in James and John. James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, sorry, 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 James, the son of Zebedee. But it can't really be him because we know from the book of Acts he was killed by Herod quite early on, Acts chapter 12. So it can't be him. There's another James that's one of the disciples. It could be him, James, son of Alphaeus, James the Less, but he's quite obscure. So if it had been him, you'd think he would have introduced himself a bit more. And the third James that we find in the New Testament, mainly in the book of Acts, is James who was the brother of Jesus. And that's who the tradition says wrote this. We know a little bit about him. He was the younger brother of Jesus. He was almost certainly the son of Mary and Joseph. And we also know from the Gospels that during the lifetime of Jesus, as he lived on on earth, James didn't believe he was the Messiah. In fact, at one point, James and the brothers come to take Jesus back home because they think he's gone mad. They don't believe who he is. But Paul tells us in in 1 Corinthians that after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to the 12 disciples, he appeared to James. And so sometime after Easter, very shortly after Easter, in those early weeks, James came to believe that his brother was the Messiah and risen from the dead. And we know a bit more about him from the Acts because we know not only did he become a believer, but he became someone that was so respected by the other believers that he became someone that taught in the church. And in fact, when the disciples themselves, when the apostles rather, had to scatter from Jerusalem, James became the leader of the church that was left in Jerusalem. In fact, he was so respected that he, he at one point leads a big conference where they, where they gather to work out how God's law is to apply to Christians. There is James with his wisdom right in the heart of it. And we actually know from the Jewish historian Josephus that James was later to die a martyr's death. Now, here's the thing. If James was the brother of Jesus... And he wanted people to listen to him when he wrote this letter. Gosh, he could have started this letter differently, couldn't he? I am James, the brother of the Lord. I am the bishop of Jerusalem. I am really important, and you should listen to me. There's really no one that knew Jesus as well as I knew him. And yet he simply says, a servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the word he uses for servant is the word doulos, which literally means a slave. I'm just a slave of Jesus. James will talk a lot in this letter about humility, how Christians should treat other Christians, how Christians shouldn't worry about who's rich and who's powerful and all these things. But he begins by living it out. I'm going to talk about humility. I'm going to act humble. That's the aroma of Jesus. That's integrity. That's what I'm going to teach is just coming through in, in my life. I, I, I was struck yesterday, I, I, I looked at a tweet that a minister had put out, and it was a well-meaning tweet, but she had tweeted out, I've just come back from holiday, and all my folk were saying how much they'd missed me, and how it wasn't the same without me. And I feel really good about this. This, this has encouraged my ministry. I'm never going to retire. And I thought, I could see where she was coming from. She was really encouraged by her people, but I thought, what's that saying? I'm indispensable. I'm important. I'm affirmed. I'll go on. I'm just a servant of Jesus. That's what should have come through. Or take something else. As I listened to the funeral of, of, of Prince Philip the other day, the Garter King of Arms, well, what a title, stood up at one point and said, Thus hath it pleased Almighty God to take out of his, this transitionary life unto his divine mercy the late and most illustrious and exalted Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Mary and Teeth, Baron Green, da 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 da, order the thistle, order the garter, order the. And God says, Wow, we want him. That's not what it's about at all, is it? In fact, I've got two pages of this. I, I, I copied it, Admiral of the United Kingdom, one of our Majesty's most honorable privy counts. So it goes on and on and on. You know the only thing that matters? Philip, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all that matters. And that for two reasons, by the way. The first is that, and James will actually spell it out here. Job puts it this way. Naked I come from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. We can't take all these things and these titles and this importance and whatever else we think we've achieved with us at all. It doesn't matter. And the second thing, the second thing is that all that matters is this title that says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, James puts it in two ways. The rich should not put pride in their humiliation, should take pride in their humiliation because they pass away. All these things you think are great don't matter because you can't take them with you. But then he goes on to say, the believers who are humble should take pride in their high position. What does that mean, that high position? Well, here's the thing. Remember I said that James said, I'm a servant or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, a doulos, a slave. A slave in the Roman world was not quite the thing that we think of when we think of a slave now, because we think of African-American slavery, racial slavery in, in America. The slave in, in, in the Roman world was different because it wasn't racial. And many slaves had miserable lives. Nobody wanted to be a slave. They worked in plantations and, 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 and farms and other things. But if you were a slave in the house of an important person, 
it actually gave you some status. In fact, in many ways, parts of the Roman world were run by the slaves of Caesar. They would be the top civil servants. They actually would be slaves of the emperor. So what does it mean to say, I'm a slave of God? I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that you are a spokesman. There's an amazing thought. It doesn't matter how high or low you are. It doesn't matter whether you're the most prayerful, spiritual, godly, powerful Christian that there's ever walked the planet, or whether you're a basket case who feels your life's going nowhere as as a follower of Jesus. You are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that makes all the difference in the world. God didn't make a mistake when He called you. You are His personal chosen representative wherever you go. No matter who you are, you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He redeemed you. He saved you. He chose you from before the creation of the world to bring the new creation into the place that you go. So you might simply say there, I'm a wretch. I'm hopeless. I'm a failure as a Christian. I'm a basket case. He can't change me. And God says to you, child, I do not make mistakes when I choose people. You are mine. I have called you. I will transform you. If only you will let me. There is nothing in the whole of creation that has more potential than one that God is at work on. So here's a little challenge. We've only got the first three three words of this chapter. Do you realize that? Next time you've got a difficulty or you feel far from God or you're struggling to know what's right, Just simply say this, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will both humble you and it will give you confidence. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put that on your phone, it will change the way you speak. Put that above the internet, it will change the way you post. Put that in the car, it will change the way you drive. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's next? We're still in verse 1. To the 12 tribes of the dispersion, or to to the 12 tribes, he says he writes, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. I think we read the 12 tribes scattered throughout the world. What's this about? Well, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, the Jews were scattered throughout the world. The 12 tribes were scattered throughout the world. And here... James says the Christians are like that. Whether you're Jews or not, you're scattered throughout the world. You found yourselves in all sorts of places where there's not many of you. There's only a few. But you are the salt. You are the light. That's God's strategy. That's how God's going to change the world. Not by force, not by armies, not by a huge big government coming along, but by scattering Christians in the salt and the light into all the places that they are to be the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, to smell for Jesus wherever they go, vulnerable, persecuted, weak, failing. But speaking of Jesus, wherever they go, sometimes it's difficult Sometimes it's difficult to be in a place where the church is weak. Sometimes it's difficult to be in a place where you're the only person that looks to God. But we're not powerless, for we are servants of the Lord. I love this little quote, which said this, we don't need bigger churches. We need bigger people. 
We need a mission strategy that actually says we're willing in all our brokenness and our failure to let the Lord Jesus Christ work on us that we might smell for Jesus wherever we go. I'm not going to say too much more this morning, but if we went on to do a few more verses. <laughs> Consider it joy, says James, when you face trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, it's one of the most strange verses in the Bible just because of those first three words, isn't it? Four words. Consider it pure joy. I mean, who thinks trials are joy? Testing is joy. All sorts of problems we have in life are joy. You know, we're Scottish. Maybe we do. <laughs> you know, we, when we have problems, we like a good gun, don't we, at the weather or whatever we're facing. What was it P.G. Woodhouse said? It's never difficult to distinguish a Scotsman with a grievance and a ray of sunshine. <laughs> But actually, what James is talking about is something else. As we have problems and face trials in life, why does James say rejoice? Well, it's simply this. God is doing something in you. Through it all, he's transforming you. The words here are all about growing, maturing, because he's going to take you to a destination which is to be like his son. Sometimes when we face trials, it, it faces them like we're just trying to survive, like we're standing on a chair and the devil's trying to knock us down and we're just trying to grab on to stay there. But actually, it's much more than that because this is an idea of moving forward, of being transformed, of trusting God as we go forward through whatever it is. And James says, you, you will learn stickability, endurance, and you will gradually become complete. He's not saying that suffering makes you a better person. It doesn't. We all know people who have really suffered, and they've shone through it, don't we? Some of the people I know that have the most joy of the Lord have the most awful experiences of suffering, but we also know people who have suffered a bit less, and they become the most cantankerous, mourning, dissatisfied people we know. So it's not about simply that suffering makes you a better person. That's not what it's saying at all. But if we have this idea that God is doing a work within us, shaping us, that we might smell like Jesus, then we begin to see something else as we begin to look for that transformation that he moves us towards maturity and completeness. How? Well, if you read on to verse 5, you'll see it begins with prayer, and we'll look a little bit more at that next week. But perhaps we could just stop by going back to those words of Richard of Chichester. Thanks be to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits which you have given us, for the pains and insults you have borne for us, most merciful Redeemer, friend, and brother. May we know you more clearly, love you more dearly and follow you more nearly day by day.